0: This is the STEM Read Podcast.
1: Welcome to the STEM Read Podcast. I'm your host, Jillian king Cargyle. I'm a writer, a book lover, and the director of Northern Illinois University's STEM Read. This episode is called The Sky Isn't the Limit. My guests are aerospace engineer Michelle Asham-Mimri and author Suzanne Slade. What do you see when you gaze at the night sky? A new frontier? Planets full of possibility? Maybe glitter sprayed across construction paper? Michelle asham memory and Suzanne Slade are two women who looked up to the sky and were determined to understand it. Michelle asham memory is helping people explore space in her work as an aerospace engineer, an entrepreneur, and the first Saudi woman to work for NASA. She started her own rocket company at the age of 26 and works to inspire girls to pursue STEM careers. Suzanne Slade has a degree in engineering and worked on the Delta and Titan rockets before becoming an author. She has written over 150 children's books, many of which explore the history of space exploration. Her newest book, Mars Is, shares amazing images being captured by NASA's high-rise camera, which is orbiting Mars. I'm going to talk to these impressive women about their amazing careers, their advice for young people, and their love of all things space today on the STEM Read Podcast. Here's our interview with Michelle AshaMemory. My name is Michal Ashamemri, and
0: I'm an aerospace engineer, entrepreneur, and I encourage people to do STEM.
1: I like that. So when did you become interested in space? And what about it was fascinating to you? So my journey to
0: be interested in space and what inspired me was when I was six years old. My mom took me to the desert in Aneza, Saudi Arabia, because my parents are originally from Saudi Arabia, but I was born and raised in the U.S. So my mom took me to the desert at night in Saudi And I looked up to the sky, it was like super clear, like there was not a cloud in the sky and it was so dark. So there's no light pollution whatsoever. And I looked up and I saw such a high density of stars and I was mesmerized, like I was so captured by it. And I kept asking my mom and my sister, like, why are these stars like flickering a different color than this? Some flicker red, some flicker blue, why do some have like a they're very bright and then others are not so bright and why do some have like a constant light and then some actually have like a flickering of light so I had so many questions and I was like I I need to know like I I, this curiosity like I had this intense amount of curiosity to try to understand this and you know I tried to look for answers and I think the best person that gave me the answer is my sister Sarah because she got so fed up with me. (laughs) asking about the stars she's like listen I'm so tired of you asking about these stars I will show you what they are made out of because I was like what are they made out of how are they there how are they staying there and mind you Sarah my sister is only a year and three months older than I am she took a piece of paper put some glue and threw some glitter and then she took the paper up and then she's like see see how like these the glitter just sticks I was like yeah that looks pretty cool And she's like it looks like the stars right I was like yeah she's like God did this that's how the stars are there that's it and i was like oh that, that's pretty brilliant but no that's not enough <laughs> so since then i decided that the only way to understand space is to go to space and the only way you can go to space is with rockets therefore i need to be the person that makes the rockets hence aerospace engineer and it stuck since i was six
1: so you've talked about learning as a process of trial and error. And occasionally you learned by blowing things up. (laughs) So how has that philosophy shaped your career trajectory? I think it's important
0: to do a lot of experimentation to figure out how things work. Because the whole purpose of me trying to put things together and take things apart in my mom's house when I was a kid is basically to try to understand it. I had like a lot of questions. I wanted to figure out how things work. So it was important because you learn so much that you cannot learn from a book when you physically touch and open things and put things together, or when you read about an experiment and do it yourself, the process and the, the retention of that information is a lot stronger if you were to participate in it as opposed to just reading it. And I think that is critical for learning in general. And that's why like a lot of the times when I teach or when I explain things, because I, I, you know, I, I used to teach at the university. I always try to have them either visualize or physically get involved in what I'm trying to say, because that's the day that they will truly understand the information and they will keep it for the rest of their life. Because there's a lot of stuff that you learn and then, you know, 48 hours later, you don't even remember what it is. But then if you are involved in it, it's it's very difficult for you to forget, you know, what it is. Like, I remember having put things apart and putting things together or creating an experiment and it blew up. And now I know that this is the wrong way to do it, you know? So you Mm -hmm. learn that.
1: Can you talk about one of those moments where you really got your hands on a problem and were able to understand it better? For sure. So
0: multiple examples I have. One of them was like, I was, I was really young, I think fifth or sixth grade. I asked my mom for my birthday to give me like every encyclopedia she could buy because you know, we didn't have, we had internet obviously at that time, I think, but like it wasn't as it is today, right? And so I wanted every encyclopedia possible and she got me every encyclopedia possible and some are more specific to specific topics and stuff like that. And so I kept reading and then replicating. One of the ones that I created is I created this bell, right? So I put the circuit, I put everything, together. And then I, my mom said, Hey, don't connect it. I'm going to be out of the house. Please don't connect it. Cause she's like, this girl is crazy. So she's like, please don't connect it until I'm home. And she was out. I kept waiting and waiting. She didn't come back And I was really eager to just plug it in and see if it works. And so I couldn't wait. I plugged it in. And then I heard this like large boom. And then the whole circuit in the house just completely shut off. So there's, I was trying to turn the light on and it was like, Not even working like everything just shut off. I shorted the whole house. So then (laughs) I was like, all right, I guess it's time to sleep. So I went to sleep. And then my mom comes. Obviously, she knows that I'm the one who did this. She fixed everything. But then what I learned from that experience that I did it wrong. And then I recognized where the problem was because I had a positive and a negative connected, which was not the way to do it. And so I had to fix the circuit in order for it to work. So I fixed it from that point. I learned how not to do it. And then I learned how to do it because I, I got that mistake. And so once I put it together, I learned how to fix it. And I learned how a circuit should be. And this is not the right way to do it the first try. So that was one way. Another another example is that one of the phones in the house back in the day when there were landlines, wasn't working. So my mom was like, okay, we're going to have to buy a new one. I was like, no, don't buy a new one. I'm going to try to fix it. Have I ever seen what's the inside of a phone no but somehow I thought if I open it I will figure it out I'm gonna see something that's out of the ordinary and figure it out and sure enough I saw something that seemed like out of place and so I was like all right I'm gonna put this where I think it should go like where I think (laughs) it needs to be so then I fixed it and it actually worked I mean eventually (laughs) she had to she had to replace the phone because it's not like I had Like I was able to solder the stuff, but I just put it there and I tried to tie little things. And so it wasn't like, it was a temporary fix.
1: It's great that she was letting you do all those experiments. (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, I'm very grateful for the fact that my mom was very enabling.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you read encyclopedias. Were there any other books or stories that interested you, uh, that influenced you as you were learning about science? I always liked...
0: Exploration books, like I've definitely loved Oliver Twist. I I liked um, A Journey to the Center of the Earth. I mean, all these types of books I read as a child, and it's more of like enabling my imagination to grow.
1: You know, that's one of the things that we try to talk about here too is that a lot of people think that imagination is something that is more in the field of artists, right? (laughs) Artists and writers are the ones who are imaginative, and STEM experts are very more linear thinkers. But what do you think about that idea?
0: I think that is wholeheartedly false because as an engineer and as a scientist, I mean, just think about Einstein alone, the thought experiment. It's all in your head and it's not linear. Sometimes it's not linear at all. And so to visualize these things, you definitely need an imagination. I mean, a lot of the physicists that think about space and all that, they have to have non-Euclidean thought processes because you're talking about the curvature of space-time, all that stuff. You have to have like a 3D capability of seeing things. And that's not going to happen if you have a linear just you know, like a robot. I, I believe that, scientists and engineers and technical thinkers have to have a very deep imagination. It's not an artist thing only.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Who were your role models? You've talked about your mom and your sister helping you early. Who were some of your other role models when you were getting into your career? I mean, a lot of scientists,
0: for sure. I I mean, obviously Einstein is one of them. I would love to understand what goes on in his brain. I've always wanted to understand because it's brilliant and you know his story i think is very inspiring in the sense that you know he made a mistake in that equation and 10 years later he figured it out and then there was one point where they were in russia for the total solar eclipse and then the war happened and then they actually confiscated all their equipment and had he been able to do the experiment to see the curvature of light then based on that equation that he had he would have, first of all, he wouldn't have known that he's wrong, number one. And number two, he wouldn't have been able to prove his theory because his equation is incorrect. It would have been like an experiment that has the wrong result. You know what I mean? So it was serendipitous that it didn't happen. Things were confiscated. And it was not until like years later that he was able to do it. So I think that story was very inspiring for me. But and then obviously, so like in terms of role models, as other scientists as well, is You know, their ability to take something from an idea and draw a method to arriving at this, whatever it is, a situation, or if you're modeling something in nature, that capability is impressive. And I've always wanted to be able to do something like this.
1: It's interesting that you bring up the story of Einstein. So tell me about something in your career professionally that didn't go the way that you thought it would, where it just didn't work out? And what did you do to recover from that?
0: So I started a rocket company right, when I was 26 years old. And the idea is to create launch vehicles to put small satellites into low earth orbit. And our concept used, our rocket was a hybrid rocket. So it has a liquid oxidizer and then a solid fuel. When we were designing that rocket and we were doing a lot of testing, one of the things that frustrated us, we had a design and the combustion chamber has to withstand very high pressures and temperatures. So you have to do something called a hydrostatic test. When we did the hydrostatic test on the material which we wanted to use, which is a composite, and we tested that composite and it should, based on the type of testing we did, it should withstand those pressures and environment that it was going to be subjected to. But for some reason, once we put everything together and did the hydro test, it kept cracking. Okay. And that is not cool. That's, that's not something to that <laughs> So then we looked at it. And because it's a composite, it's the way like the, they take the fabric and wind it a certain way and how they do it and the angles. And we don't need to get into it. Bottom line is that specific material didn't work. So we tried it several times. We made modifications. And then we arrived at the fact that this type of composite material is never going to work. So we have to change it to a completely different type. Even though in that, like I said, when we did the structural testing, it's supposed to withstand it. But then once you put it together, it didn't. It failed. So in order for us to move forward fast, now we know which material it should be. So we decided to switch immediately into a metallic combustion chamber just to test the fuel. But we already know what the correct composite material for the flight hardware. So we kind of learned from that process. It was a little bit frustrating and kind of delayed us. But then we eventually figured it out.
1: So how do you get over that initial frustration, that impact of the failure to move forward?
0: For me it's like curiosity, honestly. Yes, it's money spent and all that and it's frustrating. But you at the end of the day you it's not over. It's not like oh my god, it's not working. All right, we got to go to home and go to sleep. No. We got to figure out why it's happening. And you, so you start studying where the cracks are happening, what's going on, why did it crack in this particular location? Then you do it again and see if it happens again. And then you change the things that you thought were the cause of that crack. And then if it doesn't work out, you have to start analyzing. So it's all about, I think it's mainly the curiosity to figure out how to learn from how not to do it. Kind of like what happened with the bell at the beginning. Is it frustrating? Yes, but you focus on achieving what you want to achieve, which is, okay, I need to learn from it, and I need to fix the situation. I, I always say for engineering, test early and test often. That's how you, you avoid a lot of the issues.
1: What advice do you have for girls who want to do the types of things that you do?
0: One of the most important things as a woman is I think you have to be, have very thick skin, and you also have to recognize that, unfortunately, even today, we still have some form of I don't want to say discrimination, but you may encounter some form of a discriminatory situation or someone will doubt your capabilities. And that is really bothersome, but you have to brush that off and be who you are. In my opinion, what matters is what's in your head. And so the merit of your science and the merit of your capability and your, the merit of your analysis or whatever it is that you're doing, design is what, speaks volumes like i remember one time when i was working for a large company and i was doing rockets this was like a like a design review so as soon as i walked into the room obviously i was like maybe one out of 20 people i was the only woman there and so i was trying to present my concept but as soon as i walked into the room i was young so they immediately dismissed me like i am this nobody and then they thought that I would be clueless. As soon as I walked up and presented my portion of the rocket, I saw it in their faces as if I slapped everybody in their face. They're like, <laughs> oh my God. They dismissed me when I walked in. And then as soon as I start to present, it's like they're in shock. And so that day I recognized that, you know what? I don't care what they see, how what they feel. What matters is what I'm delivering. That's it. So I have a very strong personality and I have thick skin, so I can handle a lot of stuff. But then some people may not. And that's why I encourage them to develop thicker skin. Don't worry about it. Just do what you need to do and be yourself all the time. And if they can't handle it, that's on them.
1: Yeah, that's great advice. So... I feel like we're in a really exciting time for space exploration and just everything having to do with careers in space. So what are you excited about for the future of space exploration?
0: I'm very excited about the technologies that need to be developed in order to enable exploration of space deeper into space as well as manned missions to Mars and the colonization of the moon because it is very critical. So I believe what's going to happen in the next few years and maybe next few decades is the whole ecosystem is going to change because you're going to, first of all, industrialize the moon 100%. Because if you want to go anywhere, you're going to need to industrialize the moon for resources, be it fuel, be it metals. You're going to also have to do basically manufacturing in space, manufacturing, autonomous manufacturing on the moon, autonomous manufacturing on Mars, and then you're going to have to also Invest a lot in rocket technologies that are not chemical rockets. We're talking about electric propulsion, nuclear capabilities as well. So, nuclear rockets or nuclear thermal rockets, nuclear electric propulsion, all the stuff needs to be developed in order to enable a higher capability in space and colonization. And I think those are very exciting. I hope that the investment is there for people to be able to advance the technologies because some of the technologies are there, they just need some tender love and care in order for them to move forward, and money, obviously, and funding. So it just needs like an entity that is very interested and committed to doing it.
1: So it seems like space is a place that we've had a lot of cooperation between countries. I'm Thinking of the International Space Station and projects like that. What do you think the importance of that type of cooperation is in terms of space exploration?
0: I think it's very critical. When you put an engineer from every location in the world, that group is going to have a more formidable technology than if it's just one person. And so having that perspective from different backgrounds is really important in advancing that technology. I always say this like when I joke around. I say, okay, when you look at the designs of the Italians, it's very sexy. Look at the cars. They bring that element. When you look at the Russian technologies, They are very practical in the sense that, you know, they focus on a specific thing and they do it. Okay, it doesn't have to be pretty and it works and it's uh, reliable. When you look at our technologies, you try We try to go push the envelope in terms of state of the art of that technology and so forth. When you look at the Chinese technologies, they have a different aspect to them and the Japanese and so forth. So imagine bringing everybody from all these places and putting them in one room and you're like, hey, this is my mission, design something. I guarantee you that the technology that's going to come out of that room with those people is going to be so brilliant compared to each one doing
1: it individually. So I I think it's critical, 100%. What advice do you have for people who are interested in developing their curiosity and asking questions in pursuing a career like yours? One,
0: I would say a commitment to what you're trying to do. And most, most important is a passion because if you don't have the passion, you are incapable of dealing with the difficulties that you're going to face. So when you deal with a difficulty, and if you, you will deal with difficulties in your life 100%, but specifically when it comes to your career, if you are not passionate about the subject that you're seeking or the information or the field that you're in, then as soon as you get obstacles, and you're going to get a lot of obstacles, you're going to start to be like, why am I doing this? You're going to begin to deviate away from that field. But if you have passion, no matter how hard it gets, you're willing to go through fire for it. It's like a love relationship. It's literally being in love with what you're doing. If you're willing to go through fire for your partner, then you should be willing to go through fire for your passion in a career. So number one, pick something that you are really passionate about, something that sparks something inside of you. And number two, I would say you're going to need to do a lot of research. I always research. Even when I am the subject matter expert on my topic, I still do research because there could be something out there that I was not aware of or, you know, new information or something. So always research what you're trying to do or what you're trying to get into and read as much as you can. And then the third element is do not be afraid to fail because we're all going to fail no matter what. You're going to have to. And if you don't fail, that means you're not doing the right thing. So you need to fail. It's critical. And don't be afraid to fail because I truly believe that failure is the seed from which success grows. I would encourage you to welcome that failure and to challenge yourself. You must challenge yourself to get there. Those are the critical elements, I think, for success and for achieving what you need to achieve for your career. All right. Excellent.
1: Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you. You just heard my interview with aerospace engineer Michal Ashamemory. If you like mind-blowing connections between science and fiction, check out our Future Telling series. These web shows are a collaboration between STEM Read and Northern Illinois University Libraries. Go to go.niu.edu slash futuretelling to find our past episodes and check out our upcoming programs with Science Riot, June 18th, author Benjamin Percy and environmental historian Andy Bruno on August 4th, and author Grady Hendricks on October 27th. Go.niu.edu slash futuretelling. Up next is my interview with author Suzanne Slade. She is the creator of over 150 children's books. She's definitely an overachiever and someone that I've always looked up to in the STEM writing world. I was excited to sit down with her and talk craft and hear more about her book, Mars Is, which features images from NASA's high-rise camera, which is now orbiting Mars and sending back amazing pictures that will change the way you think about our neighboring planet. Here's my interview with author Suzanne Slade. What kind of books did you like to read when you were growing up?
2: I read nonfiction and fiction. I really loved picture books. Every summer I would join the summer reading club at my local library. So I was a big reader and some of my favorites were like Runaway Ralph, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Boxcard Children, and a book that people may not be real familiar with called Toothpaste Millionaire. And it was about this boy, Rufus, who loved science and math. And I loved science and math. So I think he did the first startup. <laughs> he started his own
1: toothpaste company. So I really enjoyed that book. <laughs> So when did you become interested in space and why does it fascinate you?
2: Well, as a girl, I think like a lot of people, you know, I always love looking up the stars, trying to find the constellations and the phases of the moon really fascinated me. But I think it wasn't until I was an adult and I started working at McDonnell Douglas on various rockets, the Titan and Delta rocket and Delta star spacecraft, that I really took a deeper look into space and became much more interested So how did you get into that career? Well, math and science were always my favorite subjects in school, and they were easiest. They came the easiest to me as well, and that just led to me studying
1: engineering in college. And from studying engineering, how did you get into rockets and things like that?
2: Well, my first job out of school, I was here in Chicago, and then I became engaged to a a gentleman who is now my husband 33 years later. Uh, He was out in California. And so I started looking for a job out there. And I, as I said, I'd been interested in space and I interviewed at McDonnell Douglas and they had a position for me. So
1: that's how it began. What was your day-to-day work like?
2: I was in the testing group. And so my job was to ensure that all the components that were going to be put on these rockets or assemblies, which were where you put several components together, that they were safe. So the ultimate goal, you test all these parts and assemblies separately, put the rockets together, and then there would be more testing down the road. It was all about safety and making sure that the parts were safe. So I would write the procedures that would tell the technicians how to test the parts. And then I would be present for the testing A lot of which took place in bomb shelters, because when you're (laughs) testing something like, let's say a liquid oxygen tank, a LOX tank, you're going to pressurize it with air. You're going to pump it with air to see if it holds and if it passes the test great. but if it fails, it blows up. It essentially becomes a bomb. Hmm. We had little indoor clean room uh, bomb shelters and also underground bomb shelters for bigger components.
1: Wow. <laughs> so so how did you go from there to writing children's books? Well, then
2: got married, became a mom, and I left my engineering career to be a stay-at-home mom. And as I'm really reading my children lots of picture books, I remembered how much I loved them as a child. And I just started thinking, as many of us do, could I write them, you know? But the challenge for me was, as an engineer, you don't take any writing courses in college. I wasn't a good writer in school. So it was a long journey for me. I had to uh, sign up for classes at a local college on writing, went to conferences, all kinds of critique groups. So it took eight years for me to get that first acceptance letter, that first book contract.
1: So... You were writing manuals and procedures and things like that (laughs) in your engineering job. And then you spend eight years learning to write children's books. So are the processes similar? I
2: I would say yes and no. Yes, in that when I start a new book project, it really, to my engineering brain, it really does feel like a puzzle. And my first step is research, is I need to find the parts that I'm going to put in this puzzle. Because... When I research a subject, I will learn so much about it, but I know that in the picture book format, I could maybe use at most maybe 10% of what I've learned. So that first step is gathering the pieces, and then I have to figure out how they fit together. Conversely, I feel kind of like the two processes are not similar because in engineering, I always felt like when we were figuring out a design or testing, there was always a best way, like there was the solution. Whereas in writing... I can think of lots of different ways I could tell the story. So I'm always like, well, what's the best way? I'm not sure. And I'm trying different ways. So they are alike and yet different.
1: (laughs) That's interesting that you only use 10% when you're creating that book. So you've published over 140 books now. (laughs) So I'd say it's working out for you. So what is that research and writing process like
2: I really don't want to take on a subject unless I can find some really good primary sources. That's my main goal, like uh, a relative of the person I'm writing about, or say in the case of my book about Gwendolyn Brooks, I was able to get access to her handwritten poetry journals. So first is to find those primary sources. And then I also, when I'm choosing my subject, it has to be someone or something I am truly fascinated by like mesmerized such as an inspiring person who faced a lot of challenges but yet went on to pursue their passion and make a huge contribution in our world or maybe it's a little known fact something amazing about someone we've heard a lot about but we didn't know this aspect or this event in their life so I always like to start with something that just blows me
1: away that I'm fascinated by and I think readers will be too Let's talk about Mars. Is so. This is your latest book. What about this subject really mesmerized you?
2: Well, of course, Mars is fascinating. But what spurred this book project was the fact that I discovered the most amazing photographs of Mars I have ever seen, and they're taken by a camera called High Rise, and it's sent back over sixty nine thousand photos of Mars. But these photos, I think, Jillian, you saw them in the book trailer. Mm-hmm. They are just gorgeous. They they have been color enhanced by scientists so that they can see things that their eyes ordinarily couldn't detect with our normal color spectrum. But they just show readers fascinating things on Mars, like these huge craters, windswept deserts, canyons, ice, volcanoes. Some have these things called alluvial fans, which are impressions that look like a fan in the rock. And it proves that water once flowed on Mars. So really the driver, I just wanted to share these photos and give readers this incredible view of Mars like they've never seen it
1: before. Yeah, the photos are absolutely amazing. So what are some of those other stories that really fascinated you? Well, as
2: a woman in STEM, I have been drawn to other women in STEM. One of my books is a computer called Catherine, how Catherine Johnson helped put America on the moon. And she worked in the field of aerospace, which I did. And, and Catherine is one of the hidden figures. You might know her from the book or the movie by that name. But I discovered Catherine when President Obama awarded her the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And this was long before the book and movie. And so I wrote this book to share her story. One of my books that just came out a couple weeks ago is called June Almeida Virus Detective. And she was the woman who discovered the first human coronavirus. Hmm. Uh, Back in 1964, a woman who was very bright, brilliant, loved science, but yet she didn't have enough money to pay for college. But despite that hurdle, she goes on, Gets a job in a hospital lab and a a bigger job. She learned how to use an electron microscope. And in the end, she teaches herself how to take these clear, sharp photos of viruses, which help scientists make discoveries. Her work has helped with the fight against COVID-19. So those are a few of the stories and, and the
1: inspirations behind them. You work on a lot of biographies. Are there similarities between these fascinating, mesmerizing people? I think the biggest
2: similarity and what draws me to them is their persistence, their grit, their passion. These are people who have a goal, talents, something they want to pursue. And no matter what obstacles they face, they keep going. They don't give up. And that's often a theme I talk about with students when I go to schools is is if you find something you love, and I, I guess that's also true of me with my writing, I ended up loving it. So as long as you stick, you keep at something, you know, the more you try it, the better you get, you know, you keep learning. Mm -hmm. And that's what is true with so many of these people that I like to feature in my books.
1: So many of your books are about space as well and space travel and given your background, (laughs) that makes a lot of sense. So what are you excited about right now with space exploration?
2: Well, I'm really excited about all of the plans being made to send the first woman to the moon. Of course, we have had women astronauts um, who have done various missions, but we have not yet sent a woman to the moon. There've only been 12 human beings ever who've landed on the moon. And I wrote a book about them called Daring Dozen, the 12 who walked on the moon. But I'm excited for the the plans for a a woman to, to walk on the moon. And I'm also fascinated by Mars. I'm with Perseverance Rover having just landed there recently. I'm interested to see what discoveries it makes and as we
1: make plans to send the first humans to Mars that'll be very exciting. If space travel became a regular occurrence would you go to space? I'm going to be
2: honest with you Jillian I'm not that brave. (laughs) 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 I, I would not be first in line as we all you know we all have our strengths and weaknesses and I really enjoy researching and learning. As a writer you know you have these really cool things that happen that kind of surprise you. One was I get to interview the fourth man on the moon, Alan Bean, two different times and hearing Alan talk about it, you know, the, the launch and all, I just feel I am better suited to share
1: this information with young readers than to actually do it. (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. We'll, we'll let them work out the kinks. So what do you hope your readers take away from your work?
2: Well, as we were talking about, you know, so many of my books are about people who pursued their passion um, despite obstacles. And I just hope that they encourage readers, whatever it is that they love, whatever's their passion that they're interested in, that it inspires them to just go after their dreams and to pursue them. Um, One of my books called Astronaut Annie, actually it's my only fiction book, is about a little girl who has a dream of being an astronaut. And... She has a career day at school, and she's going to keep that a secret until they have the, the big reveal for her family. But all of the family members are guessing, kind of thinking that she might want to do something that they're interested in. But of course, in the end, Annie pursues her dream of being an astronaut. And I, I hope that's that my books will inspire readers to do that. And coincidentally, my book, Astronaut Annie, was blasted off for space. It was sent up to the space station and read by Astronaut and McLean for the Storytime from Space program. So that was exciting.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's very exciting. I love that program. (laughs) So we've talked a lot about the pictures in Mars Is. Tell us about how you wrote to those pictures. This
2: book, I took a little different approach than I usually do. I tend to be kind of a wordy author. But in this one, I thought what I really want to do is let the photos take the main stage and have words that will kind of drive the story and allow the reader to understand what they're seeing, but to not overwhelm them. So it's a very basic, it's kind of a lilting, since it's Mars, and it goes, Mars is buried bedrock. And then you see this incredible photo, which you have, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, bubbling gas and mighty mesas. Mars is slippery snow and ice, sandy windswept dunes and craters carved by meteor crashes. So as you can see it's kind of a lilting and it so it gives the reader the main identity of what they're seeing in the photo and then there's a sidebar on each one which gives you know more details and you can dig in and more information in the back of the book as well. But I really like how this sparse prose just accompanies the pictures and allows the pictures to take the main
1: stage. I want to go back to that idea of only using 10% of your research. So (laughs) first, I have two questions about that. One, how do you keep yourself from going down a research rabbit hole? How do you know when to stop? And then two, how do you choose that 10%? Well, okay, I have not been able to stop myself from going down those rabbit
2: holes. And actually, I think research rabbit holes really make a richer, fuller story. So while I may be learning a lot of background or content about a person or an event that will never appear in my story, that knowledge is really important for me, for me, the author to know as I shape the story so that it's more authentic and real. As far as the 10%, now that's my guess, but (laughs) it's such a small fraction. But what an author is looking for is as you look at this amazing person or event, what are the key events? And maybe they're not the most well-known ones about this person, but what are the ones that all thread together that I can tie together to create this particular story that I want to tell? And then... The beautiful thing is we always have back matter. You know, those author notes, timelines, note about this or that. And some of my publishers have called me the queen of back matter because I tend (laughs) to. I love it because here's my story, which is going to be a thousand words or less in the main text. But in the back matter, I can really dig in on some various topics. For instance, on June Almeida, the woman who discovered the first human coronavirus, I could talk more about the microscope, the electron microscope she used. In the Mars Is book, a big part of this story is this camera, high-rise camera. It's the most powerful camera ever sent to another planet. And that information, of course, wouldn't fit in well within the text. But in the back, we have a whole, I have one whole note just about the camera. And that allows me to really answer readers' questions about how it works and important things.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's interesting on those school visits because you get that one kid who knows every single thing about the topic and (laughs) throws out all those questions that you have to, sometimes I've had to go back to my back matter and say, well, hold on, let's, let's look at this up. Um, I I enjoy that though. And particularly with my space books, I get the
2: kids who are just really into space and they'll pose interesting questions. and, And I enjoy that. I always get super excited when a I will get asked a question I've never been asked before in a school visit. And immediately I will know. I'm like, oh, that's a new one. And then it's, you know, it makes it fun and fresh for the author.
1: Can you give me an example something that someone has stumped you with or or really made you stretch back into that research?
2: So I have two books which cover the Apollo missions countdown, which begins with our first Apollo 1 mission and all of the others leading up to Apollo 11's landing. And then Daring Dozen, which discusses, starts with Apollo 11's landing, and then the other five missions that landed after it. So I will sometimes get a student who will ask me a real particular question about a a certain Apollo mission, and I will not have the answer ready for them on those.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Do you drive uh, your family and friends crazy with your research?
2: I think for the most part, they enjoy it. And I think I have learned to identify that that glazed over look in their eyes and know when to stop. But mm-hmm. one funny thing that comes to mind is I mentioned I'd interviewed Alan Bean, the fourth man on the moon, and I was just so gobsmacked about the whole experience. Mm-hmm. So for the next week. It just in casual conversation with my husband, I would say, well, my buddy, Alan says, (laughs) well, when I was talking to my buddy, Alan Bean, he was telling me about, so I just kept working that into normal conversation.
1: Yeah. I I feel like you should just do that all the time, no matter what you're working on. Well, I do know a lot of astronauts, so. (laughs) Right, right. That's great. You just heard my interview with author Suzanne Slade. Her latest book, Mars Is, features images from NASA's high-rise camera, which is orbiting Mars, and sending back amazing pictures. Her other recent book is June Almeida, Virus Detective. Thanks so much to my guests, aerospace engineer Michelle Ashmemory and author Suzanne Slade. Their work, their ambition, and their boundless curiosity are informing the way we view the history and the future of space exploration. You can learn more about our guests and their work in the show notes at WNIJ.org or STEMread.com. If you know a teenager who has boundless curiosity and is interested in sci-fi and speculative fiction, check out NIU's virtual summer camp, Science Plus Fiction, or any of the other cool virtual summer camps NIU is offering this year. Go to niu.edu slash steam. This is the STEM Read Podcast. The STEM Read Podcast is produced in association with WNIJ. Support for the STEM Read podcast comes from NIU STEAM and Northern Illinois University. Your future, our focus. Thanks for listening.